Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The following is a presentation of Morning Drive Media. Welcome to the TNF Hotline on the Knapsack Files. Your calls, your voice, your thoughts, and your host, Ken Knapsack. Well, thank you, Matty D. from the Knapsack Files Studios in Burbank, California. This is the Knapsack Files Hotline, the TNF Hotline to you and me. My Patreon supporters have access to a voice message box phone number like it was 1994. They call in some questions, some uh, thought starters. And we just have a good conversation based around that kind of stuff. Sometimes it's questions about me, my career, my life, or the kind of foods I like to eat. Uh, I talk about food a lot here on the Knapsack Files, and I'm okay with that. Food's important, and I'm learning to eat better. In fact, I am eating better. I made some quesadillas tonight with some rosemary and olive oil-flavored tortillas. That's right. It's a step in the right direction. They were organic. You see that organic word, you know you're doing it right. Uh, got some great calls, and uh, this show has been, what, uh, gosh, what, third, fourth episode now. I did one on Patreon first, uh, kind of a little pilot, and uh, it's been a lot of fun uh, presenting the show to you guys. Just something a little different for me to do here on the Knapsack Files podcast feed. I love incorporating uh, my my listeners and my supporters. It is, it's like a network of friends, and it worked very well for me on the show Daily Thrones. I was doing on Anchor, no longer do that show, unfortunately. But uh, I really found that it was not about my voice. It's about your guys' voice having a little conversation. So, hey, me, you know, maybe one day we'll be able to do it live. Maybe one day I'll strap on the old headphones and turn on those phone lines. You never know. Big things can happen with you guys in my corner. Got uh, some regular callers. You know, I love some of the returning voices, love those, that I, and I love the new voices. So if you're out there listening and uh, you uh, have access to that phone number already, call in. Don't be shy if you want to get it. Consider checking out patreon.com slash the Napsuck Files. All right. Why am I dilly-dallying? Why am I talking with myself? Let us hear from you, our first call of the night. Hi, uh, Ken. This is Mike Aguilaro calling the hotline. I want to say I'm a big fan of yours. Obviously, I'm a Patreon supporter. What I wanted to ask you uh, for this is I know, as far as I know, you still have never seen Ghostbusters. And I'm a huge fan of the movie. I know you are a huge fan of the people involved. And I feel like it's a travesty that you have never seen this movie. And I wanted to know if there would be a possibility you could make a Patreon goal to at some point watch the movie and do a commentary for it because I feel like you would like this movie. And obviously, I mean, the original, not not the one that came out last year. But um, I think all your Patreon supporters, subscribers would get behind that and thoroughly enjoy it. All right, Mike's got a great call to lead off here, our lead off hitter in tonight's, tonight's lineup about Ghostbusters, the original Ghostbusters. Some of you may know. Some of you have been around since the the dawn of all this. Schmoes know the early days of Napsack Files podcast when it first debuted 2013. We've talked about it before. Yeah. I've never seen the original Ghostbusters. How? 
There's a lot of reasons behind it. There's a lot of reasons why. Would I enjoy it? Yeah. Uh, I, I sometimes get a, afraid of movies. I don't consider this a haunting ghost movie, so I'm not afraid of it. I am a giant Bill Murray fan, a giant Dan Aykroyd fan, uh, Rick Moranis, Ernie Hudson, Harold Ramis, Annie Potts, Sigourney Weaver. I'm on board with everything going on in this movie, and I totally understand uh, its significance on the comedy movie landscape and the pop culture landscape. I just didn't grow up with it. I was not allowed to see a lot of movies of a certain ilk growing up. There's a lot of kids, uh, I think a lot of kids just in general, no matter when you grew up, kind of had these uh, slight limitations on uh, what movies. If, if a parents, uh, if a set of parents or a parent is doing their job, they shouldn't just, you know, hey, what are my children watching, right? I want to be careful what they're taking in. I'm, I'm understanding of that. I get that. But I was, I, was, I was not allowed to see a lot of movies growing up. And certainly not a ghost movie about busting ghosts, demonic ghosts, bad things happening, frank and coarse language, explicit language. There was just not a chance that I was going to see that movie. So you kind of grow up without it. You just don't see these movies. There's a lot of movies, big movies from the 80s that I haven't seen that you'd be shocked. And there's there's a lot that I have seen. And over time, now you're right. Ken, you're an adult now. You're making your own choices, right? Question mark. Yeah, no, I am. But again, you just don't grow up with it, so you don't end up seeing a lot of these movies, and you don't feel like it's missing from your life. I have a copy of Ghostbusters on Blu-ray. It was a gift from one Josh Tapia, a.k.a. JTE, a.k.a. JT from Screen Junkies, a.k.a. JTE Movie Thanks. That's right. My good friend Josh, uh, who is a huge fan of Ghostbusters, cannot believe. He can accept I haven't seen some other movies, but he cannot believe that I have not seen Ghostbusters. So he's like, here, I got a copy for you. He also bought me a copy of Quick Change, a movie I have seen, which is an underrated Bill Murray comedy. And he was like, uh, here, do me watch this. There's no excuses. I'm giving you a copy. But because we live in this age that we are, and this is even a couple years ago now, uh, to Mike's big question here, not just why haven't I seen Ghostbusters, but could I make it part of like a Patreon goal or an event? And yes, that's what I'd like to do. Not because I want to milk it for something. I mean, 20%, let's be honest. But... I think there's so many people now who have been been Schmoes fans, Screen Junkies fans, uh, that other company, uh, Collider Video, well, that's the one, right? Yeah, uh, they're fans. And uh, just fans of me in general, just supporters, listeners of the show who just know I haven't seen this movie. There are friends and relatives that know I haven't seen this movie, that would like to see this movie. So my thought is, let's make an event of it. Let's make an event of it. Who knows? Maybe even an event. Maybe I rent out a theater and we watch it there for the first time. Now, I've seen some parts of the movie, to be clear. I've, I'm just through the course of, of just living. Pop culture sneaks into your, your view. I, I get the, the Stay Puff Marshmallow guy, some of the shots in the, the library, the infamous uh, Dan Aykroyd ghost doing bad things to Dan Aykroyd saying, I've seen some of that. All right, so I I think uh, I think it's time. It's approaching that time. There's no reason now. There's no reason. There's no realistic reason for me not seeing Ghostbusters at this point in my life. It's just stubbornness, 
finding humor in the situation. Now I find it funny, and, and I have for the last couple of years. Someone's like, oh, yeah, you know, you've seen Ghostbusters, right? And I'd be like, no, I haven't. And the look on their face, what? And then if they know me to any certain degree, they're like, what? wait, aren't you you're a big Saturday Night Live fan, right? Yeah, I you like Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd? Oh, yes. Dan Aykroyd's perhaps my favorite SNL ca- uh, player of all time. H- how have you not seen Ghostbusters? I don't know. Haven't seen it. <laughs> it's like stubborn smug cat. That's not a good version of me. So I think maybe it's time. I think it might be time for me to end that. And I'll make something of it. We'll have fun. We will have some kind of fun with it. Maybe it's just a movie commentary track. Maybe I sit down and watch it for the first time and record that experience, video and audio. Uh, maybe uh, I rent out uh, MetLife Stadium in New Jersey and we invite 90,000. Uh, probably that, that probably won't work. I'll go back to the drawing board. Yeah, so Mike, to lead us off with a like, fun question tonight, it's coming. We'll figure it out. Me and Ghostbusters, we have a date. Hello, Ken. This is Andy from Dallas. I was recently watching some of the uh, behind the scenes uh, for the live for the the live Schmoes No Movie Show. I'm a big Battlestar Galactica fan, so I started to watch the one with Katie Sackoff where RB3 interviews her. But then at the end, they cut to a clip of you and her. One, uh, how was that chemistry developed between you two? Was was that easy? And two, from your performing days, what were some of the techniques that you would that would help you to establish that chemistry or rapport with other performers? Andy from Dallas checking back in. He's become a regular here around these parts, usually with a great baseball question, and I love talking baseball, so it's always an excuse. But Andy's got uh, an interesting two-part question here. If you've uh, been a fan of the Schmoes, know for a while now, you know at one point Katie Sackhoff, the great Katie Sackhoff from Longmire, and of course as Starbuck in the uh, Battlestar Galactica reboot, reimagine, if you will, in the mid-2000s, which is, is, is one of my favorite sci-fi properties. One of my favorite TV shows of all time, and, and Katie is great. She co-hosted uh, Schmoes, would come back as a guest, uh, and, and we always had a lot of fun with her. In fact, I took her on in the first kind of official movie trivia Schmodown. I know there was the one with Cobster and JT that inspired it all, but the first ever tournament, back in 2014, the first match was me versus Katie. Things were different. It's a great video. You can look it up. And uh, we had a lot of fun, but the, the intros, the, everything about it was was different at the time, and, and it's grown into something big. Uh, but back then, Katie, Katie and I were the first, and I defeated her. But we had a great post-match interview, uh, a little behind-the-scenes clip, and then she came back at one point when uh, Phase 6 of the Schmo show was going on, and I think I had my ponytail back then. And uh, we had a, some behind-the-scenes stuff, and I was campaigning for her to follow me on Twitter because she never did, even though uh, she'd always some favorites of my tweets that I uh, would write to her before we both were regulars on the Schmoes show, uh, then after she became the co-host, and then when, when we kind of worked together for a little while on the show, or when she was a guest, and she just kind of, and I would ask her jokingly off camera, and she would be like, I'm never going to follow you, ha ha ha, uh, but it was a thing, she never, so I'd made this campaign, she finally did, she still to this day follows me, and I haven't seen Katie in a while, she, she is great, so uh, Andy's got a question, number one, about uh, our chemistry off the camera, off on camera, off camera was, there was no chemistry, on camera, we had a lot of fun, and Katie's great, here's the secret. So, Alex, you want to, uh, Alex, Andy, you want to know um, how I cultivated this on-camera chemistry with Katie? Um, I was intimidated by her. 
I'm still intimidated by her. She's Starbuck. She is larger than life. Katie is a giant personality. She fills a room. And it's usually with great laughter, great joy, and a lot of swear words and some dragon sounds. And every single time, I would never get used to the fact that Katie was there. And after a while, you got to get over that, right? I mean, I, you have to. And we were, I was able to turn that nervousness into uh, a back and forth banter. And she was always aware. She was very, uh, you know, very aware that I was uncomfortable with it. So she'd play around with it. She didn't, she'd have fun insulting me. Uh, she's a sweetheart. Um, she would uh, call me not funny and say she's not going to follow me and just, just just cut me off at the knees. And it was always fun. It was always a thing. So uh, there's a weird case where we had a lot of fun on camera and on air, but off camera, I still would be like, ah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and it's not some... Um, it wasn't like some fanboy thing. I couldn't fully explain it. I just couldn't fully explain it. It just was like she was she was so much and so great and it was so wonderful to have her around. And in my mind, I knew her as Starbuck first and then now uh, as co-host and as guest later. And uh, uh, it, it was always it was always an interesting ride. And you don't know where it's going to go. You open up that microphone sometimes when when Katie was hosting the show, and it went wherever she wanted to take it sometimes. And it always went to weird, funny places and often dirty places. And, of course, dragon sounds. But Andy's second part of that question is, is equally as interesting to me. He talks about how do you find on-air chemistry through entertaining and podcasting and broadcasting and comedy and all that kind of stuff. It is hard. And I don't have a scientific list to give anybody other than you just kind of know when it's there, but it can be worked upon and, and at and for. Uh, writing sketches is a, it was an interesting thing and during my time studying sketch and improv and, and, and playing around with the groundlings and all that kind of stuff. Sitting down and, and writing sketches, you would find right away who you could write them with quickly. And speed doesn't necessarily mean it's great. You could struggle for four or five hours and, and find something. Um, but you you would find right away. You would know. And I, I had worked with great people during my time during that in that industry and in that that section of the industry, I should say. And um, you you would thirty three minutes and you have a hit sketch and you just know and you're in sync. And one person writes, the other person paces, uh, as opposed to. Someone, I, I could never work well with the ones who were like every sentence. We're writing this together. We're, def we're in fact, you know, writing partners for this sketch. Every line, let's go over every line, every sentence, every exclamation point, period, comma, everything, every beat. They'd want to work on it. And I just like, no, let me, you talk, I'll go in the corner, then we'll talk about it. That's improv or writing. Writing is, especially you know, if you've got partners, it's kind of a form of improv. You're just making it up as you go. You're just having to put it on paper, and then it becomes planned, right? So you would, you would find it, but you just you don't know sometimes. You would just, it's just a rhythm. Same when you're in scenes together. That's more of an acting thing. I'm not a great actor. Other people can speak on that. But when it comes to radio and broadcasting, I do have some experiences, and it is an interesting thing. There is a give and take that is needed. When you're a host and co-host or, uh, you know, both hosting together, who is the lead? Do you need a lead? Can you share the load? Share the load, as Frodo and Samwise knew so well and would say. Um, do you, um, you know, uh, do you speak an, un, an unwritten language? I always would go, uh, as an example of this, would go to Maud Garrett 
and I hosting Jedi Alliance for the Shmozo Network that became the Popcorn Talk Network. And if you go back, I think the first 29 episodes were us. Um, even though we found the footing of the show as we, as we went on, uh, we, we had something from the first time we rehearsed. Like, we rehearsed. We met at my house before. We created the show. We were given the show by uh, the, the, the management team there and the Schmoes and everything. But we created the show down to the formats and the segments and how we were going to do it. And we met at my apartment and, and we went over a show. We just, with no cameras and no microphones, just did a show together. And right away we found, you know, we're going to be okay. She has a great amount of experience as a broadcaster and a host. Uh, was down out in California, actually moved out here from Australia to, to host a radio show. And so she knew the rhythms so well. And Maud and I could communicate just by eye contact. If you watch some of the best Jedi Alliance episodes with her and I on, it is, it is not a case of, of me going, Hi, I'm Ken Epsock, and this is Maud Garrett. It was, Hi, I'm Ken. Hi, I'm Maud. This is a show. Boom, boom, boom. We're going. And you could... You know, since other other than you know moments where she was, uh, she'd have a little fun and laugh. She was always so so energetic, and I had kind of my, you know, uh, what I am, my quiet, uh, dour side, uh, and doing the host mode. We never really would talk over each other. We never really fight for air. We would give and take. It was her show. It was my show. It was both of our shows, and that was one of my favorite experiences. And you can see sometimes the struggle. When you're co-hosting shows, sometimes you have to find that footing. Josh McCuga and I have a great chemistry and rapport that is just on air and off air. Uh, Owen Mugan and I, with this is this is life, are uh, coming into this never really working with each other other than when I interviewed him, and we're finding that rhythm, and it's there, and it's on a different energy level and different wavelength, and that's interesting to me. And then you have, uh, you know, again, Josh and I hit a certain level. Ellis and I, when we're hosting Schmodowns, we don't talk about any of that stuff. We're not sitting there working off a script. We're just going. And sometimes you step over each other. Sometimes one goes left, one goes right. But there is, it's just inherent. And, and again, you can, I think you can teach yourself or go learn to be a broadcaster. That's what I always talk about. When it comes to podcasting, broadcasting, that's a thing. That's a skill. Letterman considered himself a broadcaster, not a comedian, not just a host. He was a broadcaster in the old sense of the word. And that, that, that as I stumble over my words, I'm a professional broadcaster. But I also don't worry about that. I say and uh, a lot. And uh, I, you know what? You're right. I shouldn't. But it, it's, 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 it's not about that stuff it's about energy it's about approach it's about control over the show i go live to tape all the time i rarely edit on the knapsack files that leads to some funny little moments funny little stumble stumbles over some syllables like that one um i my mouth gets dry easily i have a lot of water sometimes it doesn't work i love live to tape that's why i love radio i love being out there on that high wire act and you can teach yourself or learn those skills and it is like, I will say, professional wrestling. I'm not a worker. I was a manager. Worked some matches, but I can see how these guys do it, and I'd be back there. You learn this, the craft and the skills required to be a professional wrestler. You lo- learn your move moveset. You learn uh, how to call matches, how to be called in matches, uh, high spots, low spots, rest spots, all that kind of stuff. You learn how to put on a match. And then you travel around or you go to your local feds and then you work with different people and you'll have chemistry or you don't. But you each know 
each know when you get in that ring, if I say, if I, we're locked in a headlock uh, and, and I, I say, you know, uh, swing, miss, leapfrog, tackle, drop down, all that kind of stuff, you know they know. The chemistry might be something that's unexplainable, but you take care of your side of the coin, your side of it. And I think that's what broadcasting and co-hosting and being a panelist is all about. People do it wrong. A lot of people do it wrong. I'm not perfect. Don't get me. Don't get me wrong. I'm not perfect at it. But you can do this wrong. You can be a guest on a podcast or a YouTube show or a regular show or the Tonight Show. You can be a guest wrong. You can. McCuga and I talk about it all the time. A lot of YouTubers, God bless them, in the rooms talking to their cameras, and that's a great skill. And then they hit on other shows, and they just can't do it. They don't know what to do. It is a skill, broadcasting. So you learn yours, your side of it. You learn your skills, and then you go into a show, and you find that chemistry with somebody. Maude Garrett and I, boom, click. Mark Ellis and I, we click. Uh, other people, are, you know, it's there. It can grow. It can get better. I don't believe, uh, much like in romance, like it's not just the one. It's not always magic. You have to work at some of these things. And that is how you form that chemistry. It is rhythm. It is momentum. It is communicating with the eyes. In, and paying attention and listening. In radio, my, my, I can't, uh, the, the, the announcer at the beginning of the show is, is Matty D, who's been a guest on the Knapsack Files, and he and I had a radio show for, for a while uh, growing up uh, at K-Bear, and we had a good rhythm, rhythm. Did I just echo my own self? Rhythm, rhythm, rhythm. I was more the straight man. He was more the kind of wild, funny, crazy man. And not in the typical radio way, like, bah, bah, just he, he, he would become unchained and had just natural, pure comedy complaining about something he experienced the night before, a news story or something like that, and we would we would just play it so well. We had a chemistry we just had, and we worked at it because we, we understood what each person's role were. Passing the ball around is a great thing. It is a pet peeve of mine. When you go on shows, you should hear the host 30% of the time, the panelists the rest of the time, 70%, even throw in an extra 5%, 105%, that's right. 75% for the guests, 30% for the host. I'm, I don't math well. That's what it's all about. I'm sorry, I get kind of preachy, don't I? I look around the empty room here. Yeah, because it's, 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 it's a thing I see. I just see a lot of people in the space. I know comics. I know movies. Put me on that panel. They'll tweet, they'll tweet, they'll tweet. Put me on that panel. And they get on that panel and they dominate. They don't share the ball or they don't reach out and take the ball. And that's on the host sometimes. Or they don't have a persona, don't have a character. That is what this is. Uh, this, there's a reason I have a bit of a podcasting voice or a radio voice. I'm not doing this all the time. I'm not that. But this is a character. And I've talked about it before. So I don't want to drive that into the ground. But great question, Andy. Maybe next month we go back to baseball. Hey, again, this is uh, Joseph Thomas. I'm calling from uh, Modesto, California. And uh, I've talked to you previously about... Uh, things going on in my life and uh talked about like depression and stuff like that and i know on your show you've talked about your experience with depression and i've really been able to connect with that because your experience has been similar to mine in a lot of ways and uh basically as my question is i'm working on uh, majoring in a film production at uh, csd northridge and obviously that's a lot of work and something i struggle with is staying motivated during the periods of time where i might feel down or depressed or things like that so I was wondering, do you have any advice for how you've been able to 
like do all your content, create everything, and stay motivated, even though times you've dealt with depression as well. So I was wondering if you had any advice on how you stay motivated during times of when times get tough. Joseph, thanks for that very honest call. Let's talk depression. Let's talk motivation. Depression's a favorite topic of mine. Well, that's depressing. No, it's because it's real. It's because it's out there. It's because something we all struggle with. And the motivation factor. That's important, too. I always like to break things down to day by day, moment by moment, and allow yourself the ability to not be motivated, to have down days, to have down hours, to have bad shows or bad projects, to write badly, and to just, you know, not want to do it some days. I really believe that's a powerful part of this. Have your goals. Joseph sounds like he has his goals. Wants to go to CSUN. Matadors, Northridge, checking in. Not too far from where I worked for a long, long time. Uh, Great school, too. Uh, You know, you have your goals. You have your dreams. Make your dreams your goals and work hard. Be like The Rock. But know that there's going to be those days and in those moments that you're feeling that, Joseph, and anyone out there listening. the, The moments in where you are not motivated. Now, check yourself. Make sure you're in the right career path. Make sure your passions are, are you know, are your passions. You can pursue wrong. I've gone down the wrong path. Spent too much time dreaming about being a professional baseball player. I should have picked that up earlier. I've also been on what uh, could have been a path, and then I pulled off of it because I didn't uh, work for it. And in some ways, that's because I wasn't, didn't remain motivated, didn't keep myself motivated. So, much like Yoda tells Luke in The Last Jedi, failure is often the best teacher. I failed in this a lot, Joseph. I've failed to remain motivated. I failed to get myself motivated. And I failed to allow myself to have moments where I am not motivated. Why is that important? Because I think we drive, we drive, we push, we push, we reach, we reach, we reach. And that can be exhausting, even though... It's good, even though it's what you should do. We should all work hard. I always preach to the preach to the young folks. Said the some said the guy who's not too <laughs> old himself. I was preaching to the people in their twenties. Man, get it done now. Work hard now. You'll have time. Thirty isn't as old as you think. Forty is not as old as you think. It's not as old as I think. Sometimes you'll have time, and all those things that you think you want to do, the parties, the effing off to go to the lake or whatever you want to do have that every now and then you gotta you gotta rest i believe in that too but work hard prepare yourself whether it's school whatever it is because you'll have all the time to enjoy those things that you want to do the fun things the party things all that you'll have time for that later and you'll have time to do it on the back of your own success so work hard but to the original question Depression and motivation will creep in. Joseph, make sure you have a support bank. Make sure you have someone that you can be honest with. Make sure you have someone to be held accountable to. Telling someone, I have this goal. This is what I'm working on. If I start to falter, if I start to fail, if I start to turn left when the path is right, I'm going to tell you and you're going to help me. And maybe you need a swift kick in your butt. Maybe you need a hand on the shoulder. Maybe you need both. I react to different styles of coaching. Everyone reacts differently. It's one thing I learned in in, in 12 years as as being a boss and and a leader is 
you cannot treat every employee the same. You can't, there is no playbook on how to manage. There's tips, there's guides, there's things to do, but each person is an individual. One person might react well to you yelling, get the job done. They might be like, oh, crap, that's what I needed. Thanks for the kick in the pants. Other people, you just cannot do that. And also check what state you are in and how strict the labor laws, labor laws are. That's an old, another conversation. But be accountable. Know what style that you need the help in, Joseph. Do you need a swift kick in the pants? Do you need your hand held? And be okay with it. And then be okay in those moments where you wake up and look yourself in the mirror and go, I just can't do it today. I will always tell you to be okay with that. And that later that day, later in the week, maybe the next morning, you will find that motivation again if it's already in you. Take a breath and be okay with taking that breath. Good luck, Joseph. You're going to get there. Hi, Ken. It's Thomas. Uh, just wanted to know something here. I've been rereading Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and it made me wonder, what was your first introduction to Hitchhiker's Guide? Was it the original BBC radio play? Was it the... Uh, the books that came afterwards, or the film, and uh, which did you favor? Also, now that it's been 12 years since the last attempt at the film, uh, do you think we could be staring down a remake of Hitchhiker's Guide anytime soon, or a reboot, rather? Uh, I'd love to know what you think. Thanks for taking the call, and I hope you're having a great day. Thomas checking back in. He is a regular for sure, and I hope he sticks around. He's always got some great thought starters for me, and he's talking about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Grab your towel. Don't panic. Let's jump into this conversation. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The books, the radio play, the computer game, and the BBC series, and the movie by Douglas Adams. Though, unfortunately, he passed before the movie hit the theaters, so we did write the first uh, drafts of the story and the script. Uh, Douglas Adams, absolutely because of this, and Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, uh, is one of my all-time favorite writers and, and, and an influence early on. He is His writings are, are what made me want to write funny things. And there's a lot of other people that made me want to perform funny things, say funny things, be funny things. Douglas Adams made me want to write funny things. Even though my career's gone a different path, I still every once in a while love to get back and just write even though the news, say on Schmoes No or back in my radio days, was very much inspired by Dennis Miller and that kind of style of, of broadcasting humor, uh, being funny and being weird, because I'd often make, especially in my radio days, would make weird, uh, obtuse references or weird approaches to joke telling. That a lot of times came from Douglas Adams and his absurd but insightful British humor. And the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy remains one of my favorite properties to this day. So I was ex- I was introduced to it in an odd way, the computer game. Oh, in the uh, early mid '80s, I uh, was I had a Commodore 64. I've talked about that before. That was the computer of the moment. Big. Uh, home family uh, computer there, home computer. You put in your big floppy disk, and I knew, do mean a big floppy disk. You put it in, and you load up with some like basic coding to load any of the programs. Oh, those were the days. 
And my dad and uncle, my late uncle Nick, they would they would exchange games. At like you know, we had like three to four hundred games on the Commodore sixty four. So my friends, I never had a Nintendo, but my friends had the original Nintendo. They'd be like, "We've got like three games, come on over." And I'm like, "Nah, I got a like a cool joystick and like three hundred games to choose from here on the uh, the old Commodore." And uh, there was this weird text based game, and there was one called Zork and Zork Two. And it was like the early RPG games. I think I, you know, credit these games leading to things like Final Fantasy and other things like that. And even some of these big open world games. This was, uh, relatively speaking, an open world game. There were some certain things you had to do. And so Zork was like this weird one. You were in the weird world. You'd explore. You'd st- I remember uh, the details are fuzzy, but you'd start in a cave and you'd explore a cave. And you'd have to, you'd type it. So you'd read and a paragraph would come up. You enter a dark cave. It smells like this. You hear this. And you would type. A little, your icon, your little cursor would flash, and you'd like type. Uh, walk north. Uh, you walk north four steps and then fall. You know, it, it was like a weird version of like D&D. And so there was one. I, we had Zork. And then there was another one I put in. It was just called Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I was like, I have no idea what this is. It was like nine, ten years old, maybe. And it starts just like the story. If you're familiar with the story, you're Arthur Dent. You wake up. You're in little dazed. There's a rumble and there's a bulldozer coming for your house. You're going to die. How do you get out of it? And you have to type. Now, later on, someone, a friend of mine, printed out, like, how to solve uh, the solve of the game. Like, here's all the steps you need to do. You had to be relatively accurate. You could, like, so I said, it's, it's open world, kind of, but really, really it wasn't. So... You couldn't just say, jump out the window. You'd have to, no, you have to, you know, find uh, your glasses under the bed or whatever it was. Uh, There was a certain path. And then I would would find my way around it and get up to the point where I was on a spaceship. The Vogons would, would take me up. And my friend, a Ford prefect, who suddenly revealed to me that he was an alien. And so I, I, again, have no idea this is anything. No idea it was a radio play. No idea it was a BBC series. And definitely no idea it was a popular novel. So I'm just like, this is fascinating because I like Star Wars and we're dealing with spaceships here, right? When's the laser guns going to happen? It never happens. And I I kept getting stuck on this ship. I couldn't get out of it. And there was this fish, this babble fish was given to me. At some point, you end up within your inventory. And I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. And I mentioned it to a friend of mine named Eric and and, uh, we're good friends, uh, longtime friends. And and he was like, oh, it's, yeah, Hitchhiker's Guide. Yeah, we have that game, too. You have, you have to uh, you do like they do in the book. You have to stick it in your in your ear, the fish. And I'm like, what do you mean the book? They made a book in this computer game? He's no, the computer game is based on the book. Now, at the time, he probably wasn't aware it was based off of uh, Douglas Adams' own radio play. So I was fascinated. I had to seek this out. And by this time, I'm like 11, 12 years old. And that is usually, that's, that's usually the time you find Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which it always offends me that sometimes I've had some people, friends of mine, brush off the series. Like, oh, you like Hitchhikers? Yeah, of course. I'm in, I was in junior high, too. Like, no, F off. This is still a great piece of, of pop culture property here, man. This is, this is, it is what it is. Yeah, but you find it young. You find a lot of things young. Saturday Night Live, Monty Python, Simpsons, Kids in the Hall, things like that. I mean, yes, they enter your life at a certain time. 12 is kind of that pop culture awakening era where before that, you're just, it's cool songs that you listen to. You don't understand their place in the greater scheme of pop culture in the world. 
So I was fascinated. I found the novels. I think my parents helped track me down uh, the novels at a used bookstore in town. Probably the famous Nan's used books in Arroyo Grande, California that I reference. And then every once in a while I reference it and people write me back on Twitter. It's still there. And then I go visit my hometown and it's moved, but it's still there. So I think that's where I picked up a copy. And of course, you, you end up getting at the time it was four it was four books in the increasingly inaccurately named trilogy of books. Uh, of course, it's Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Restaurant at the End of the Universe, uh, Life, the Universe, and Everything, and then So Long and Thanks for All the Fish. And then a fifth book came out in the early 90s, I do believe, called Mostly Harmless, written by Douglas Adams. And then uh, Silence for a Long Time, he wrote the two Dirk Gently books, which are great. Uh, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, and then long, uh, Dirk Gently, and he was at the Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul. And he wrote some, a bunch of other things, of course. He worked on Dr. Hugh, oh, Dr. Hugh, Dr. Who for a while in the 70s, uh, early 80s, all that kind of stuff. He worked uh, tangentially with some of the Monty Python guys, and he was really big in the early days of Apple. He was all about the Apple IIe, all that kind of stuff. So he, you know, and he moved to Santa Barbara, British, of course, moved to Santa Barbara, and not too far from, from uh, you know, where I grew up, and of course now not too far from where I am in L.A., and uh, a friend of mine uh, who's been on the show, it's been a while, Jay Arrett, uh, been on the music shows early on in the Knapsack Files days, and I think we're going to do that again, uh, I hope, this year. Make it happen. Jay, if you're listening. And uh, he was a fan, and it's just that type of thing. You just connect to it. You grab a towel. That's part of the thing you need to hitchhike around. You grab uh, your Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is, you know, you look at it now, it was basically an iPad with the internet, and it, it was like Douglas Adams was predicting the future a little bit. And you write the words, don't panic on it, because that's the best advice you can take with you throughout the galaxy. And it's a wonderful adventure. I'm sure most of you are, are familiar with it. I'm just telling you what you know. But it, it changed uh, the way I uh, approached my writings. It changed the way I looked at the world. It was important to me. And in 2005, the movie comes out. They had tried many, many times. You always heard they were going to make a Hitchhiker's movie. The BBC series, I believe, was about 1982, definitely early 80s. It's... Uh, it is cheesy in many wonderful ways. And the radio series, which came out before all of this, is equally as spectacular. And I, and I listened to that after. I was computer game, books, then the TV show and the radio series after. And if you're a longtime fan that hasn't listened to the BBC series, check it out. It's also a little different. There's things that are different. Douglas Adams always said that each version of his story should be told a little different. He didn't want it the same, which leads me to the movie. 2005, uh, Martin Freeman, Most Deaf, Zoe Deschanel, Sam Rockwell leading this cast. Sam Rockwell as Zaphoid Beeblebrox, the president of the galaxy. And it is, Malkovich is in it too, Bill Nighy. It is a good movie. It's really good. I think it's underrated. I'm staring at a copy of it on my shelf right now, right next to my Arthur Dent uh, action figure. It is, uh, is it is it A-plus perfect movie? No, 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 it's not. But it, it's really good, and I think it's underrated, and it's really funny, and it stays very true to Douglas Adams' story and the core of his story, and there were some changes, and it was interesting. And it's 2005, so fandom has changed, the internet has changed, we all have our voices, good or bad, and I think that movie now would have even been even more maligned, unfortunately. The story was changed from the books. 
And if you weren't familiar with the radio series or you hadn't listened to it in a while or you never really were aware of what Douglas Adams felt, that this story should change. Every time it's told, it should be a little different. Otherwise, what's the point? He was responsible for some of the changes that you see in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the 2005 movie, including a love story, uh, part of the ending, and little details here and there. He, he, that was in his drafts. So they followed his vision. They followed it to the end, and it was oddly maligned. People were like, well, this isn't, that's not, that shouldn't happen. That's not true to the character. And it was like, unfortunately, Douglas Adams died in the early 2000s, I believe 2002 or three. Someone should correct me, unfortunately. Um, he died of a heart attack in Santa Barbara while, while working out. I believe he was only 50, 51 maybe at the most. It was sad. I remember my friend Jay, we were in a fantasy baseball league together. We shared some emails like, I cannot believe it happened. And this was, of course, internet was raging, but it wasn't uh, as fast as it is now. Now that goes out on Twitter and you learn and you got all the information in front of you. You didn't know right away. We didn't know. We had to wait for some of the information. And it was tragic. And later on after that, a sixth book came out. Uh, Ian Colfer, I believe his name, was tapped to finish it, to kind of write this draft. And it, it's unfortunately, it, it's not my favorite. It's not too great. It also, you know, I just needed, it needed, it was very much someone who, and he's a good writer. He, he's got a, a successful career outside of that book, but it was him trying to be Douglas Adams. And that's, that was, that's tough. That's tough for anybody. I, I couldn't do it. And then they did uh, uh, the Salmon of Doubt, which is uh, like a partial. Uh, it's, uh, Douglas Adams was working on the long-awaited third uh, Dirk Gently series, and then that that book came out. And there's been some great biographies of him, and he's he's famous for saying, as a writer, I love deadlines. I love the whizzing sound they make as they race past my uh, ears. He was notoriously bad at hitting his deadlines, which makes him more of a writer than any writer I know. So. Do I think, as I monologue, as I reminisce about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, do I think it's time, 12 years? I cannot believe, Thomas, it's been that fast. I was disappointed. I wanted them. They set it up. They left it open. They wanted the sequel. Martin Freeman is a perfect Arthur Dent. Most Def was a great Ford prefect. Zoe Deschanel was a great Trillion. And Rockwell killed it as Zaphod Beeflebrox. He's, a, he's an Oscar winner now. I believe it because I love them as Beeble Brocks. They wanted to do the restaurant at the end of the universe. It just didn't happen. So in a weird way, would I like to see it? Yeah, maybe with the same cast. Maybe you could do it now. Be a long time. It wouldn't make sense. You'd have to explain the aging, but I'm up for that. I almost would rather have that and an awkward continuation, a sequel to a movie 12 years later, where the story's supposed to pick up a little bit right right after the first book. Maybe maybe you do some adjustments. I don't know. Um, I would rather see that than a complete reboot, though it's possible. There was always a weird bit of uh, tension between Douglas Adams and the folks that made Men in Black. Not that he didn't like them or the movie, but he'd always been told when he tried to get a movie version of The Hitchhiker's Guide off the ground, he's always told, sci-fi comedy won't work. And the Men in Black series, the movie, uh, the movies, of course, are based off comics. It's not like they copied. They didn't copy at all, but it was a sci-fi comedy. And it got made, and his movie didn't. And there was always a weird uh, a weird part of uh, Douglas Adams' career where he was upset about that. Um, but eventually it did get made. I think it's a damn fine movie. You should check it out. And maybe, just maybe, we'll get that sequel. 
Hey, Ken, it's Tim from Connecticut. Yeah, that's right, snowy, freezing cold Connecticut. Very jealous of you in Southern California right now for a multitude of reasons. Quick question with uh, Toys R Us closing down. It's it's very sad, and I had to make one final excursion out there today, kind of say my goodbyes, pick up uh, a nice Star Wars collectible. Do you yourself, that's your Ken Napsok, have any Toys R Us memories that you're willing to share with us and anything that you're going to take to its unfortunate grave? Once again, thank you, sir. Have a good one. I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid. I grew up with that song. It is still in my head. Tim from snowy Connecticut. I'm sorry. Uh, Greetings from 59 degrees and falling Burbank. We'll get through this together, Tim. Talking about Toys R Us. All right, it's closing. It's going out of business. It's done. It's kaput. Brick and mortar stores are falling, right? That's the lay of the land. That's where we are. Some can succeed. I'm not going to get into the business of it. I'm not a good businessman. I I think Toys R Us made some mistakes along the way. I was watching some videos, reading some stories of some choices they made over the last few years, even going back, way back into the early 2000s. that they could have maybe done some things. All right? I get it. I get it. But here we are. Regardless, it's closing. And Tim's asking about memories. I'm like I'm like Billy the Kid in Young Guns 2 talking to Bradley Whitford's character in 1951. Scars? You want to hear scars? I got scars. Yeah. I got Toys R Us stories. I, I, I have uh, maybe mentioned it here before. I have a habit, even in real life, of repeating stories. I'm sorry. In the mid-2000s, I was attending Allen Hancock College in Santa Maria, California, studying film, uh, screenwriting, video production, all that kind of stuff. Uh, with my friends at the time, Matty D., eventually my, my radio partner, my friend Gavin, we went to high school together, and my good friend Joel Trudgeon, who was down here in um, down here in Southern California, doing some screenwriting, filmmaking, teaching, and uh, works over at Valley College here in uh, San Fernando Valley. Angel, a longtime friend of mine, and we were big into wrestling, just as like we are now. We are we are big into wrestling in the '90s. I mean, in fact, you could be argue you could argue that that was the peak of my wrestling fandom was in the mid '90s there. And '95, uh, I want to say '95, they were releasing those WWF figures, the little classic little uh, action figures that weren't uh, posable, but they came with like action poses. So some kind like Hulk, Hulk Hogan had a, like a headlock in his arm would move, or another Hogan had like you twist his torso and he like clotheslines you. You know, I had a bunch of those. We we collected those. And uh, they would release the different series of these figures, and you know, you get more excited. It's much like with Star Wars or GI Joe. You love the first batch. Oh, I got my Jake Roberts and my Rick Rude, but I want a Mister Perfect. Oh, that's coming out the next batch. So a batch was coming on out, and and again, back in the back in the back of the old days, we didn't have the internet at our disposal. Yeah, some people had it, but you know, not everyone had it, and it wasn't the same. It wasn't what it was, and. You couldn't go on a website and find out what figures are being released next month. You had to, like, wait. And so there was a Toys R Us in Santa Maria, California. That wasn't too far from our college there. And um, between classes, or sometimes, because we were in film and video production and you would expect to go shoot these projects, sometimes during what would technically be considered class, we would walk or drive over to this Toys R Us and check. It's around the same time. This is a golden era, like a second golden era for toys. The 80s, of course, are the big golden era, which is uh, I'm fortunate enough to have grown up in. That's why I cry at the toys that made us on Netflix. 
But in the mid-90s, man, the power of the force figures. Legos were starting to expand and get into signing to properties. You know, by the time Phantom Menace rolled around in 99, you could get Star Wars Legos. It was unheard of. And in the 90s, they were putting out great, great lines. And uh, the G.I. Joe figures were still around. Eventually, they had some, you know, uh, 25-year ones were a little bit later on. That's another point in time. But I get those at Toys R Us, too. And, uh, you know, we would, uh, the, the Power of the Force, when that, was that 94, 95, I think, the Power of the Force figures, that was huge, huge. But I remember we were collecting these wrestling figures, and we both were walking down the aisle, and we both do the turn and find the walls of figures. And I was like, oh, my gosh, the new batch of figures is out. And I forget who else was in the line, but he and I are both, like, pulling them off the racks. Kamala or Earthquake and all these kind of classic figures. Berserker, I think, was one of them. Uh, Warlord might have been there. I don't know. But we were both fans of Bret Hart. We were fans of the Hart family, and we are fans of of the, unfortunately, now late uh, Owen Hart. And they'd released an Owen Hart figure in his high-energy gimmick back at the time, big, poofy, blue pants. (laughs) We both see it at the same time. Now, Joel is Canadian. He's from Red Deer, Alberta, Canada. He should have more of a claim to the hearts than I should. And he sees, not just sees the figure, he goes, oh gosh, it's Owen Hart. And he reaches and he pulls the figure off the shelf and he's got it in his hands. And he's so excited. Big Canadian face with a big smile across it. He's like, they got Owen Hart. And I grab it out of his hand, yank it out of his hand, and I go, great, I want it. And it was such a moment. I'm not that type of person. At least I don't think I am. We both paused, kind of looked at each other like I was shocked. It was as if uh, it was uh, Smeagol and Deagle in the beginning of Return of the King. Like this ring got put in front of me, and I suddenly was like, give it to me. It's mine. I still have the figure. Joel does not. Because in that weird moment, he kind of thought, well, all right. There's a big lineup uh, of figures here, a big giant display, a big giant wall of wrestling figures. I'm sure there's another Owen Hart in there. Well, there wasn't. I don't know if I've ever truly apologized to him. I I think I'll take this opportunity, or maybe I'll finally get him on the Knapsack Files and apologize to him. In person. So, Joel, if you're listening, I'm sorry, and I'll make it up to you. Other memories of Toys R Us, well, you know, as a child, I didn't go to Toys R Us as much. I think there was in my hometown one, but there was a KB Toys closer and near to me. That's where a lot of my, like, early Kenner Star Wars figures memories happen uh and occasionally so it's weird i've occasionally had dreams of that toy store and that wall of kenner star wars figures toys r us was later for me in the 90s is one of santa maria then moving to la there's obviously more than a few down here and i haven't been in one in a long time and now unfortunately i won't i'm not really heading over to anyone right now it's got to be four or five years since i've been in a toys r us and, and therein lies the problem i guess I'd rather order them uh, online, get them at Target. Even Walgreens is a big place for my Star Wars figures. So you can see where it's changed. We can see where the business landscape has changed. And um doesn't mean I'm not sad about those memories. I think one of the big memories I will always have at Toys R Us is in the early spring of 1999. 
Star Wars Episode One was on its way out. And I was in line at midnight with strangers and friends alike. We were all friends by the end of that night because we were all going to get those Star Wars Episode One of Phantom Menace action figures. The doors open. We are let in ten at a time. And you'd rush. There was plenty to go around, they said. Don't rush. Don't run. Don't push. But oh, we did. And we'd grab all these figures. I've got a Captain Panaka. I've got a Rick O'Lee. I've got a Battle Droid with Battle Gear. I've got a Chancellor Valorum. Certainly all these characters are going to stay with us forever. And we can snicker at the Phantom Menace. You guys know I'm a prequelist. You guys know I've come to love the prequel trilogy. But at the time, it was the greatest thing. A few months later, it wasn't as much. I've had to learn to find the themes and and look past some bad execution, bad choices from George Lucas at, at the wild, crazy, inventive storytelling buried beneath it. And what's funny is, I joke, we snicker. We look at these figures that were released in The Phantom Menace and laugh. Oh, these classic figures. But you know what? I still have them. Most of the Phantom Menace line that I own are out of the packages because I displayed them at my apartment at the time. But I still have a few. I have a Darth Maul on card. I have an Emperor Palpatine on card. I have them all. We could make fun of Chancellor Valorum. We could make fun of Rick O'Lee. But when I look at them now, I am taken back in my mind, in my senses, in my heart to that Toys R Us up in Granada Hills, California, Porter Ranch area, top of the 118, sitting there at midnight, waiting for those Toys R Us doors to open for me to get my Star Wars figures. Do I have memories of Toys R Us? You bet I do. Hey, Ken, it's Kai. My question today is about superpowers. So if you were to wake up tomorrow morning and you were to have a superpower, what would you want it to be? I have always liked the idea of being able to fly. So that would be my choice. Thanks. Let's close out the show with that question from Kai. Superpowers. You guys know I'm not much of a superhero fan, but I've thought about superpowers. We've talked about big things tonight. We've talked about depression, motivation, on-air chemistry, how to approach broadcasting. I've shared some bittersweet memories. So, yeah, let's talk superpowers. What would I want to be? What would I want my superpower to be? Flying seems pretty cool, but I am afraid of falling. I, I uh, you know, Some people say that is a fear of heights. I say I like being high up. It's just the fear of falling. It's like a separate fear to me. So I don't know if I can fly around. I can barely trust airplanes. I can't trust myself up there. I've always thought invisibility. I mean, that's, you know, definitely what you kind of want in junior high for high in high school for nefarious reasons. All right. Yeah, we've all had that thought. I'd like to be invisible. Walk into that locker room. Oh, never mind. That's wrong. It's wrong. You don't. That's abuse of power. You are a villain at that point. Mind reading seems pretty cool. Get to know what people want. Have a leg up on your opponents, a leg up on your arch nemesis. That seems pretty cool. But it also seems like, can you turn that power on and off? I definitely want that power to be an on-off type of power. I don't always want to know everyone's thoughts. And it also takes out some of the mystery of life. And I bet if you had that power, you might be able to use it for good when it comes to, you know, fighting uh, evil. But I'm sure you're sitting around 
maybe uh, on a date and you want I want to know what's going on inside their mind and you jump inside their mind yeah you maybe you'd learn things maybe you'd know what they're feeling about you maybe you know what's going to happen to you at the end of the night uh-uh wink wink nudge nudge but it also takes out part of the fun and I just think it would be too hard to not use that power I wouldn't want to do that so I've always thought the superpower I want is immediate sleep I want to be called Nap Man, Napsock the Nap Man. I want to take naps on command. I want to fall asleep on command. Now, I like lay- lounging around in bed, maybe watching some YouTube videos, checking emails, getting caught in that technology loop, and drifting off. Yeah, that's, that's fine. But there's those nights where it's 3 a.m., 4 a.m., 5 a.m. Oh, my gosh, I haven't slept. Those are the worst nights of all. Frustrating beyond belief. So, Kai, you're asking about my superpower? I want to sleep. All right, that is the Knapsack Files hotline for this month. The fifth episode in the books. We're going here. I like this little party we're throwing. Thank you to all my callers and supporters. Again, if you want to join the conversation here, you want to put a question or thoughts that are out there, go to patreon.com slash the Knapsack Files. Tier three and above will get you access to the hotline number. Thanks to all my supporters. And thank you for listening. That is is a great support to me. Just listening, spreading the word, uh, rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts. You know the drill. We're available on a lot of spots. If you're listening to me on Podomatic, I'm also on Stitcher, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, and I hope soon Spotify, waiting to hear. Finally getting this one. Four centers on Spotify, trying to get this one on. I think it's finally going to happen. And then you can take me anywhere. It'll be a lot of fun. So that is it for now. Follow me at Ken Napsock. Don't forget, I am on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Ken Napsock. I am on there uh, about three, four times a week trying to sort out that regular schedule. Twitch and Battlefront 2. I know it's streaming, but I like saying Twitch and, Twitch and Battlefront 2. Uh, Lego Force Awakens right now, just kind of have, having fun trying to finish that game. Uh, WWE 2K18, more games coming. A lot of things in the works. Guys, gals, friends, relatives, even some enemies. I'm glad you're here. We'll see you next time on the TNF Hotline. <laughs>